Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. Um, we're making our way through the book of Hebrews, and we find ourselves this morning in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, if you would, go ahead and open up to uh, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And chapter 7 is where we'll be looking at uh, this morning. <clears throat> I'm thankful for Rob and, and staff and, and everybody as they've been able to, on these short notices, put together uh, this online program for ministry, and uh, I'm very grateful for their gifts and their abilities and how God has blessed them in that. So if you see them, send them a note of, of encouragement and thanks, because it takes a lot of different people to kind of put this together. And so I'm just, I'm happy to know that we've got those in our church who have the ability to do that. There was a man who had some personal issues going on in his life, and, and he he asked a woman in his office if she would pray for him. He knew that, that she was a woman of prayer. And uh, matter of fact, he knew that she kept on her desk a, a list of the, the ten most important prayers that she would focus on each day. And so he, he approached her and he asked if she would pray for him. And, and he, said, he said, would you have any room on your list there to put my name and my issues that I'm dealing with? And she said, well, yes, certainly, I can do that. She says, the people, three of them that I were praying for have died. That's maybe not what we're asking when we think about someone to pray for us, hoping maybe for better results than, yeah, three people I prayed for have died. But uh, we need someone to step in and intercede on our behalf at times. And that's what this is all about. And we look at chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. You see, it's one of the uniquenesses about the church. Whenever we have some need or something's going on in our life that we, we want to approach God about, then we, we have other people who can pray for us. And that's a wonderful thing. It's called intercessory prayer. In, in simple, intercession is when you take time out of your days and out of your prayer life to lift up somebody else and their concerns before God and you're interceding on their behalf for some sort of healing or some fix within the mess that they might be in. And so we've got this special opportunity to ask others to pray for us. We, we see it in the Old Testament that this was something that took place. There was always the role of the mediator was also the role of the intercessor. Someone who then would pray on behalf of the people. We see it in, in, in fellows like Abraham and Moses, and, and we'll see it in, in David and Samuel and Ezekiel, and, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And God had Abraham at one point intercede for kings. And he prayed for them that, that they would not do to, that God would not do to them some of the things that probably he should have because of Abraham's sin. Job was also told by God to intercede for his friends because of their thoughts about what was taking place in his life. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells us, first of all, that he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all the people. As we begin our look at our book of, of Hebrews in chapter 7, we read near the end of this chapter some amazing words in Hebrews 7, verse 25. It says, consequently, I mean, as a result of everything else, he's saying, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. We see that also echoed by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, when he says, who is to condemn? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. It's one thing to ask me to pray for you or for your community group or for the church, but notice, we also get Jesus interceding on our behalf, the Son of God actually talking to the Father about our specific needs when we ask him to intercede and speak to God on our behalf. I mean, Jesus Christ really is this ultimate intercessor. He, he's, he's better than what I can do. I mean, the best thing I can do in this world today is to pray for you. That is ultimately the best thing I can do. But even better than that is to ask that Jesus would intercede on your behalf and take your concerns up with his Father. See, we've been kind of dancing around this role, the topic of the high priest, and, and really not just the high priest, but a specific role of a high priest over the last few chapters. And we know that the high priest is one who would intercede on behalf of the people of Israel. I mean, it was an important role to place, especially once a year on the holiest of all days in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, which is known as the Day of Atonement. The high priest, he would bring a blood sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. I mean, that blood would represent the sins of the people and the sins of the high priest as well. And he would take this sacrifice of the blood and he would walk into that inner chamber, that inner sanctuary where, where God's presence would reside on this day of atonement. And he would offer up this sacrifice on the altar and then he would carry that blood in to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and there he would scatter the blood on the mercy seat, which really was the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. And, and there between these two golden angels that had been affixed atop of it, the blood would stain and would spread out over the Ark. Now this offering of blood was probably the most important offering or the most important sacrifice of the year. This day of atonement and this sacrificial offering of the blood. You see, the point of Yom Kippur is that without the sacrifices, without the acts of contrition, the repentance from our sinfulness, there could be actually no forgiveness from God. And without forgiveness, you couldn't have your name entered into the book of life for the next year. And so you'd have to wait then for the following year as hopefully this day of atonement would come. But when Jesus came, things changed. You see, year after year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. And on the Day of Atonement, he would offer up the sacrifice for the people and for his own sins. And he would ask God to forgive the sins of the people, including himself, the high priest. And what the high priest was doing, in effect, was interceding for the people of Israel. And when Jesus came, he came to offer the most ultimate sacrifice of all once and for all a sacrifice for all the sins for your sins for my sins for the entire world and he presented his own blood offering for our sins and in a sense 
He brought his sacrifice in the blood of that sacrifice, not only into the Holy of Holies, but beyond that, into the very throne room of God, into the inner sanctuary of the very presence of God in heaven. And now he is there interceding on our behalf for every sin, not just once a year, but every day of every year because of this one sacrifice that he made so there is now no longer a need for multiple sacrifices there's no need for the day of atonement because Jesus has paid the price once for all and and that's where we come into Hebrews chapter 7 he's going to introduce to us this idea of how he does this I mean it's it's a good thing that he can do this but with every good thing there's always a little bit of a problem and that's where the Jews had a problem with Jesus becoming their high priest. Why the author here in Hebrews is going to lay out over a few chapters the important role that Jesus has to play in this. You see, here's where we get into this this trouble that people call the Melchizedekian priesthood. It's important if you really want to understand who this guy Melchizedek is and why and how he is important to us. So we're going to dig into chapter 7 of Hebrews, but we're also going to go back into the Old Testament and look at just a few verses that kind of introduce this character to us. You see, in order to be a priest, you had to have a specific right to claim that role as a priest. All high priests came from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You remember which one it was? You're right, Levi. Out of the tribe of Levi, which was set apart from all the other tribes, out of the tribe of Levi, and Levi only could the, could the priest role come, and the high priest had to be one from among them. Look at what it says in, in Numbers chapter 18, verse 6. It says, And behold, I have taken your brothers from the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. But, here's where the problem comes. But Jesus, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. You you had to be a Levite in order to be a priest, and not even a prophet or a king could fulfill the role of a priest. It doesn't matter what other tribe they came from, they couldn't do it. You had to be a Levite, and Jesus isn't a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. So how could Jesus fulfill the role of high priest not being from the tribe of Levi? Well, the only way that Jesus could become a high priest was if God created a a different priesthood. And that's exactly what he did. It wasn't just a different priesthood. It was a priesthood of even a higher order of things. The writer of Hebrews tells us that God declared his intentions in Psalm 110. And Jesus quoted that psalm a few times in his ministry. So listen to what he says here at Psalm 110, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, now note that there are two references to the word Lord. One Lord is in all capital letters, at least in my Bible and a lot of translations. That word is, is the word Yahweh. That's the name that God has given himself, and so they translate it in all capital letters, Lord. And the Father, uh, so that's who that is. And the second Lord is in a lowercase, which indicated he was speaking about 
the Christ, the Messiah. Ultimately, it's Jesus. And that's what David is referring to. He is saying that my God is talking to his son, the Messiah, my Lord. And in the same reference Jesus used when he was talking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, he uses this to indicate that David wasn't the one that was special. How can he be calling his son whom they thought was going to be the Messiah How would he call him Lord since he would be his son? Would not David be the Lord over his son? And so he uses this understanding and it sheds a new light on the way that people began to think about this specific scripture. And they were amazed at the authority in which Jesus used this one scripture to change the fact that he wasn't talking about a descendant of David necessarily. He's talking about the Messiah, the Son of God. So David continues talking here, and I want us to look at Psalm 110, verses 2, 3, and 4. And so it says, The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, you, lowercase Lord, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So without getting crazy deep into all this, the Psalm of David is telling us that God declared that there was going to be a change in the priesthood. He was going to establish a new priesthood that would last forever Look at that last line again there in Psalm 110, verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the writer of Hebrew goes even further into helping us understand this role of this new priesthood and and, and understanding Melchizedek. He declared that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior, was a better priesthood, than the Levitical priesthood. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. He's telling us the priesthood of Aaron that they had there in the temple in Jerusalem was a good priesthood. But there was one that is even better than that, and it is the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, one that is more superior to then this priesthood. Remember, we've already seen some progression as the writer started uh, stating that Jesus and his ministry was higher and better than the prophets and better than the angels and better than Moses. And now he's telling us it's even better than the high priest. So the second thing we need to understand then is look at is this. So who is or who was this Melchizedek? Now, he, he has this cameo appearance in the Old Testament. It's found in just three verses in the book of Genesis, chapter 14. That's it. I mean, nowhere else is he... Dis- this is it. He has this one opportunity when he steps on stage and recorded history in just three verses. But he has such a significant role that now the author of Hebrews is taking chapters to help us understand who he is. And so in Genesis, chapter 14, we discover this mysterious man, his name, Melchizedek, Melech means king, Sadek means righteousness. So his name literally means he is the king of righteousness and he was the king of a city called Salem or Shalom, Jerusalem. So the king of Salem or the king of peace. 
now king of righteousness, king of peace. We're beginning to see some sounds, things that sound familiar to us. Yet, not only was he this king, he was also, we discover there in Genesis chapter 14, he was a priest of the God Most High in Jerusalem, long before the nation of Israel even arises and Solomon builds his temple there. Now, it's interesting here because Melchizedek, he has no genealogy to speak of. I mean, it, the scripture says he has no father, no mother, he has no descendants. At least there's none recorded in scripture, and even outside of scripture, there's nothing that records anything about him. He has no beginning and he has no end. There's no record of his birth, no record of his death. He just appears on the scene as this eternal king and priest. Now, the points in which Melchizedek and Jesus correspond with each other, we believe that God used him in the Old Testament deliberately, leaving out things about his past, about his identity, so that it would include this, this uh, idea that he is a type of the Messiah, a type of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the points in which they are similar, in which they correspond as type and anti-type, are these. One, he's a king of righteousness and a king of peace. That's Melchizedek. But that also is Jesus. The second is, is he remains a priest perpetually or, or forever. He, he's, his priesthood is continual. It, it always goes. And that would be Jesus as well. The second or the third is he had no ancestors in the priestly office. He wasn't born into priesthood. At least we have no idea of that. Same thing with Jesus. And he has no successors in his priestly office either because Scripture does not tell us that after Melchizedek died, so-and-so became the priest there in Salem. We have nothing about it. And so his priesthood is infinite. And the same is that of Jesus. He is a priest of a different order than the order of Aaron and the Levites. And so Jesus has to be as well. He's united in himself the office of king and priest. You see, the king was not permitted to go into the Holy of Holies, no matter how powerful or, or how holy he might have thought himself to be. There were certain things that he could do, but other things he could not. And now we have this king-priest relationship, which is the same as that of Melchizedek. So I want to give you a little background history. Uh, uh, before he makes his grand entrance here in Genesis chapter 14. There are four kings. Amraphel, the king of, of uh, Shinar, which is Babylon. Uh, Arioch, which is the king of Elasser. Elasser was a place also in Babylon. Ketileomer, he's the king of Elam, which is a country that was east of Babylon. And Tidal, the king of the Goyim. Goyim means nations. So Tidal is a king of, of many different nations. Now these four kings, they have come out of the east, out of the northeast, and they are invading an area called Sodom and Gomorrah. Down right now in what we call the Dead Sea Valley. Now these four kings, they came up against the five kings of that region. And, and having defeated them, they then departed with a, a, just this great amount of booty as well as a large number of captors, including Abram's nephew, Lot. Now, a messenger somehow escapes the captivity and he makes his way and he finds Abram 
And he tells Abram what has happened. So Abram grabs 318 of his men, his servants, within his household, and they create an army, and they set out in pursuit, and they head north, north of Dan and north of Damascus, where they finally catch up to these guys. And they, by God's victorious blessing, Abram and his 300 men are able to defeat these four kings from the northeast. And so they, they recover the spoils, as well as those who have been taken captive. And now on, on Abram's way back down to Hebron, Abram passes Jerusalem through the valley of Sheva, which is the king's valley. And as he's passing through, we have introduced now this man, Melchizedek. He comes out of the city and he meets Abram and he brings with him some bread and some wine to, to refresh Abram and his men. And while he is there, Abram then gives him one-tenth of all the spoils of war that he has just captured. And he hands it over to Melchizedek as an offering because he is the priest of the Most High God. Now, a lot of speculation has been made as to who this mysterious Melchizedek is. And I did a little bit of research this past week. And, and you can go in and you can find all kinds of ideas of who they think he is. Some of them have suggested that Melchizedek was actually Shem, the son of Noah, who was still alive after all these years. As a matter of fact, they would say that Shem lived another 40 years even after Abram dies. Others have suggested that he might be one of the other sons, such as Ham, who was the other son of Noah, or a descendant of Japheth, the, the other son. Or he could have been possibly Job or even Enoch come back to this earth. Now, a couple of the early church fathers, Origen and Didymus, during the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries, they're looking into a lot of these things, trying to figure out who he is. They have suggested that Melchizedek might have even been an angel. And some of the Jewish writings, especially in Qumran, they, they thought that they suggested he may have been the archangel Michael. The Orthodox Church, they maintain that he was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in human form during Abraham's day. However, our author of Hebrews sees him simply as a type or a representative of Christ. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. It says, This man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So the writer's telling us that Melchizedek, he's not a descendant of the Levites. In fact, verse 3 says that his genealogy cannot even be traced and nobody knows when he was born. And despite all of this, Abraham still gave him one-tenth from the victory spoils, and Melchizedek then blessed him and his people. And, and verse 7 tells us that it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, you have to understand that. All right, so Abraham, who was considered one of the greatest men in Jewish history and culture and faith and all that goes with it, he is now inferior to this Melchizedek? And so we learn there's no arguing about this fact. 
that Abraham, we know who he is, he's hugely important for the Jewish people, and he then is blessed by this kingly priest, Melchizedek, who is then viewed as superior to Abraham, which is why he gave him an offering. But even more than that, Melchizedek had been intended to be a type of Christ, an example of who Jesus was to be, or, or maybe a snapshot in a sense of what Jesus would look like. And it was a deliberate comparison on God's part. God wants us to realize that this Melchizedek, who has the appearance of eternal priesthood and kingship, is really who Jesus is. So let's go back into Hebrews chapter 7 and back at verse 2. And it says, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. The point of all that is this. Melchizedek, through him, God is declaring that the coming Messiah would be a king bringing both righteousness and peace. And that's really what we need, isn't it? We need a king who is, who is righteous in his mannerisms. We need a king who has peace, that he has the ability to bring that no matter what he's doing. A, a nation with that kind of king and priest is going to be satisfied with all that they have. But even more than that, through this great Old Testament priest, God declares something special about Jesus' priesthood. Ultimately, God intended Melchizedek to be a picture of what Jesus would be, an eternal priest. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is this. First, there is only one only one sacrifice now that God's going to accept for the sins of the people because Jesus is of an eternal priesthood and he has offered that one sacrifice and God doesn't doesn't need any more sacrifices he has no need of any sacrifices to be offered to him because of that final sacrifice which Christ gave when Jesus died on the cross he offered for us the ultimate and final sacrifice any offerings beyond that are unnecessary. Since Jesus came into the world, the only sacrifice necessary for life was the life of his son. So there's only one sacrifice that God now accepts. Secondly, there is only one high priest that can intercede then on our behalf. And since Jesus has this eternal, er, eternal priesthood, no one else is ever going to replace him. No one will, will intercede between God and humanity but him. And I think I kind of like that, don't you? Knowing that, that all you need then is to go to him and he will intercede on your behalf. We don't have to wait for somebody else to come. We don't have to do it ourselves. He's the one who's going to do it. Listen to what it says in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In essence, Jesus is saying, I am the high priest, and I am the only one who can intercede for you. There's no other way that you're going to get to God except coming through me. 
I mean, it's similar to what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when he said that, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His is the only way that we can go. So lots of people in our world will tell you, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you have a sincere faith and you're good. And others will tell you that all faiths somehow lead to heaven, but that isn't so. Because if those sentiments were true, then Jesus would not be the one who the Bible says he is. And his suffering and his death and his intercession for us is a moot point. His miracles and his resurrection were then really, they're worthless for us. They're no good for us because there's other places to do. All right, as we start leading into this finish line, I think we need to look at the rest of this chapter beginning in verse 21 through 28. I'm going to let it speak for itself mostly here. Listen what he says. He says in verse 21, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, these priests, they couldn't stay a priest forever because they were going to die. But Jesus becomes the priest after his death and his resurrection, and he lives forever. So it's a different role he's placing here. He said, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So the Bible declares, and in no uncertain terms, Jesus offered the only sacrifice acceptable for our sins and He was the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. The new and better covenant is based on Jesus' eternal high priesthood when it comes with God's oath and Jesus as the guarantor, making it superior to any other covenant that is out there. Honestly, if we stop and we go all the way back to where we started this morning, what more do we need than to know that God sent His Son, His only Son, His perfect Son, to be our sacrifice. So we wouldn't have to do it again and again and again. And we know that His kingdom lasts forever. And the joy is that we get to join Him on that journey. 
All you need to do is just to say yes to Jesus. Put your faith in Him. He has told us that if we believe in Him, even if we die, yet we shall live. We need to tell Him simply just to have His way with us. Confess Him as your Lord and as your priest and as your King and, and, of your life and be baptized in His name and, and continue thereon. No longer have to offer up sacrifices for your sins, but continue thereon every day thanking Him for His sacrifice by living your life obedient to Him and sharing the wonderful news about what He has done, not just for you, not just for me, but for anybody who would put their faith in Him. You see, that priesthood is the only one that we need. We no longer have to sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats because that's useless. We no longer have to take in our grain offerings because they're worthless. We just have to accept the offering of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are thankful for today. We know that what you have done for us is amazing. That, that long ago you even set forth a plan to appoint your Son, your one and only Son, to become this Melchizedekian priest Really, it's a messianic priest, one who is going to last forever. And Father, we are so thankful he intercedes on our behalf because we know there's no way we could stand before your presence face to face because of our guilt and our shame. Father, our sin has separated us from you. But his love, his sacrifice, and his intercession makes all the difference. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.